Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I'm Natalie Pearson. The Malaysian state of Sarawak, on the island of Borneo, is home to the indigenous Iban people, endangered orangutans, and what today's guest calls the multiscalar forces of conservation. Today we're going to be thinking about human environment and human-animal relationships in Sarawak, and the issues associated with Indigenous conservation and land management practices. I'm joined by Dr June Rubis, a postdoctoral research fellow in Indigenous Environmental Studies at the Sydney Environmental Institute, University of Sydney. June is a former conservation biologist with 12 years of conservation fieldwork and Indigenous rights issues in Borneo, both Malaysian and Indonesian Borneo. She was born and raised in Sarawak and is currently co-chair of Documenting Territories of Life program with the Indigenous Communities Conserved Areas Consortium. June, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're actually calling us from Sarawak today. Can you tell us a little bit about your home state? Yes. Uh, well, Sarawak is one of the two Borneo states of Malaysia, uh, the largest among the 13 states with an area almost as equal of peninsula Malaysia. Uh, Sarawak is located in the northwest Borneo Island and is bordered by the other Malaysian state of Sabah in the northeast and Kalimantan in the south and also Brunei in the north. Uh, Sarawak is ethnically, culturally and linguistically diverse with major ethnic groups, including the Iban, Malay, Chinese, Malana, Bidayu, of which I am from, Orang and the Orang Ulu. English and Malay are the two official languages of the state, and there is no official religion. That is a fantastic introduction. And how did you find yourself in Sarawak, even though you've got this postdoc at SEI? Is this a result of COVID? It is definitely the result of COVID and the closing of borders. I had actually returned home for a while. And that's when the borders suddenly closed, first in Malaysia and then in Australia. And I remember talking with my boss thinking, oh, you know, I'll just be away for a few months. And it's been, I've been away since March. So I feel quite bad about it. But thankfully with Zoom, everything works out. And thankfully we're able to talk to you over the podcast today as well and welcome you into the University of Sydney community, including at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. So you've mentioned that there are many Indigenous peoples living in Sarawak. Who are the Indigenous people that you've been working with? Well, I've been working with the Ulu'ai or Batangai Ibans. They live in the orangutan habitat in Sarawak, which is located in the southwest Sarawak. These protected areas are called Batangai National Park and Lanjak Entima Wildlife Sanctuary. And together they share a transboundary connection with the Butuankerehun, which is a national park in West Kalimantan. So according to my interlocutors, they have arrived in Sarawak for over 400 years ago from West Kalimantan. They refer to themselves as the first Iban group to have settled in Sarawak. So this attests to like hundreds of years of long relationships with the land and more than humans, including orangutans. Okay, we're going to come to the orangutans in a minute, but let me first ask you, uh, are these popular tourist destinations, these parks that you're spending time in and, and working with the people who live in these parks, are there many tourists who come to these destinations to see the orangutans? It has become a popular destination after they dammed the area. Batangai National Park was formed in the 80s and they dammed it prior to that. And a lot of the indigenous peoples had been resettled away from these protected areas 
and only several communities actually stay within the borders or within the park itself. And with that, the state has created this tourism package where you, you can visit these communities and stay with them. So it's been quite an interesting way to spend time, I suppose, in wild orangutan habitats. And the communities also get to decide whether they want to welcome tourists or not. Oh, that's very interesting. Can you tell us about the process through which they're consulted and are able to allow visitors or not? So what first they were consulted about the dam and a lot of the communities were offered land elsewhere, but many of them still maintain customary rights towards the land. They were consulted about alternative sources of income. For example, there were like fish farms that were introduced, but that didn't quite work because they were hoping that when they introduced the fish farms, the tilapia fish farms in the dam area, that the men would stop hunting in the national park as to spend time in a fish farm. But what had happened was that the women then took over the fish farms and the men continued what was part of the cultural activities and it didn't work out for a couple of communities. So it's interesting because we're talking about this land, Batangai, that's had decades of intervention by state authorities and also conservation NGOs and activities. And you describe the continuance and the thriving of Indigenous people sort of despite these conservation forces. The Iban and other Indigenous people do manage to maintain relations with the land and with the animals living on the land. How do they do that? What are the strategies that they use? So I previously talked about many communities being displaced uh, when the dam was built and the park was created. But many communities, like I think over 20 communities, still maintain customary tenure around the area. And this includes living on the land. So to maintain the presence on the land, you also have to show that you're continually farming, which is hard because the way that Ibans and other Native peoples in Sarawak sort of conceive land and being in relation with the land, it's not just about farming for food, but it's also maintaining what they call pulaos, which is like their own conservation areas where they may go to hunt, but they don't necessarily go there to extract a lot of natural resources. So the Ibans, they maintain customary tenure, they do small-scale farming and they plant rice, then they maintain vegetable gardens to create food for themselves in the longhouses. And also what I discovered in my research is that they also participate in conservation narratives around the orangutan. Your research is very much underpinned by decolonial and political ecology frameworks, which draw on ideas relating to Indigenous survivance. And perhaps you could explain survivance or whether it's the same as survival. But it also draws on these ideas of the politics of refusal. How do you apply these different frameworks to your research? Um, I suppose I'll talk about political ecology as a framework first. Uh, it works to critique the dominant ideas of nature and conservation through bringing attention to the political relations and entrenched ideas of ecology. So political ecology has drawn from political economy to analyze underlying drivers of environmental degradation and conflict. Um, so for my research, I was particularly interested in the conservation and control strand of political ecology. So within the conservation and control thesis of political ecology, Local producers have lost control of their natural resources and landscapes uh, through the implementations of efforts by the state and global interests, and that include conservation forces, to preserve what they see as sustainability or nature. So in the process, local systems of livelihoods, production, and sociopolitical organizations are dismantled. But I was also interested in many ways of how Indigenous peoples resist. And to that, I looked towards like the idea of survivance 
which was first formulated by Visenor, who is um, a theorist, indigenous theorist from North America. And he talks about surviving in the world, you know, despite like the process of colonization of or how we see colonization today through an active sense of presencing. So it's not just about stories of dispossession, but also like stories of resistance and, and just ways of being actively present in lands or in areas where they're not supposed to be. So I was really interested in that of like, how do we then see how indigenous Ibans uh, work to resist conservation narratives that goes beyond like, for example, this environmental narrative, like, oh, they've been dispossessed, they're weak, you know, we need to help them. This idea of, like, I guess the white survivorship, however you formed it. So that's how I wanted to use indigenous survivance. I want to also first acknowledge the contextualizations and the specificity of indigenous thinking and theorizing. So I do not assume similar claims to indigenous universalisms, like how colonization does, but rather hold this Polarity of formation in theorizing as I think through the possibilities enacted through my own thinking around indigenous uh, indigenous responses towards conservation actions. So there may be commonalities, but there are no universals. So I'm conscious of replicating epistemic colonization, which basically is the colonization of thought and knowledge. And I want to situate my claims in their original context while acknowledging previous work that other local scholars have done. Mm. There's a lot to be said for the politics of citation and scholarship there, I think, which it seems like you're very attentive to. So let's turn now to the orangutans. And I want to talk not so much about the animal, but about the term orangutan and what it tells us about the imposition of Western epistemologies and ways of thinking in the context of the Iban. Can you expand on that? Sure. So familiar with the Indo-Malay region, it is often assumed that orangutan is a term that locals use it is, after all, derived from the Malay words orang for person and utan or hutan for forest or person of forest. Um, however, I, I wanted to focus on the areas where my interlocutors have been living. And when I first arrived there as a conservation biologist and, you know, they found out what I was doing, they wanted me to know what orangutan meant. And they said that was a Western term, that was a white term. And that itself has been described in other literature work. For example, The Cultural History of Orangutan, which is a really interesting book that was recently published by Australian scholars. Um, but I was more interested in how the indigenous Ibans of the Batangai called orangutan, and they called them the Mayas. And there were different ways of calling the Mayas. So that helped me ground my work, was that I wanted to understand how the Ibans called orangutan or the Mayas and how they relate to them in various ways. But when you work in conservation, it's very much focused on orangutan. And it's very much like drawn into like this very romanticized view that it's a person of the forest. And it elicits this view that it should be taken care of, you know, like we should protect it. Whereas the Ibans have different ways of seeing the Mayas, which is what my research then looks into. Yeah. Orangutans are, of course, very charismatic. And one of the postdocs we had here at SIAC was looking at what he calls charismatic megafauna. So I can certainly see the appeal of using orangutans as a case study, but I mean, what you're doing in this process is really interrogating the ways that we know and name things and, and also people and places and animals. What can interrogating these ways of knowing and naming tell us about Indigenous ways of knowing and relating? 
I suppose I can only speak from the Batangai Iban perspectives of ways of knowing and relating. And yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up. Orangutan is a charismatic animal, and it's very much how mainstream conservation works. Because the understanding is that, you know, we need sort of a flagship species to get people's attention, to get people to care for the air, you know, for the land that we want to protect. But we forget that the people already living in the areas and they have their own different ways of understanding the animal. The orangutan is actually quite an interesting species to think through conservation actions because in my perspective, for example, if I say to someone outside of Borneo, you know, if I'm in a Western country, I'm from Borneo, they immediately think about the orangutan. And I find it so fascinating because, for example, I'm Bidayu myself. And, well, we call the orangutan like the Mawas, but we don't really have stories or relations about the orangutans because orangutans are only currently found in the southwest part of Sarawak. So we have like different relations with like more than human species. We talk about other things like the mountains and the hornbills and other species. And it really struck me that how much orangutan is such a huge figment of the outside Borneo world. Whereas when you talk to the indigenous local communities, they have closer relations to other things. So when we talk about wanting to conserve an area, it's sort of like, who are we conserving an area for? Um, conservation biologists uh, have this argument that, okay, well, orangutan, for example, it's a flagship species because they have a large territory. So when we focus on that, then we can focus on conserving um, large tracts of land. And yeah, that is a good argument to think through, like, how do we save land from industrial dispossessions but ultimately it also means you know thinking it again from the top down and when you do it this a certain way you also then enforce certain narratives about the people that people then take for granted and they don't question so I guess I'm just here for my research to trouble the, the ways of like how we understand Borneo how we understand the orangutan and what are other ways that we could think about conservation actions that would bring the local peoples in more authoritative ways where we're, we're not just like imposing or condescending upon them. That was a fantastic answer, June. Thank you for sharing. So I mentioned in my intro that you're a former conservation biologist. How did those experiences inform your current research? So I was born and raised in Sarawak. I am Bidayu. My mom is Filipino, as I mentioned, but I was raised in Sarawak. And I've always wanted to connect and relate to the environment. My Bidai grandmother passed away before I was born, and I only had my grandfather who came from the village and would stay with us. And that was my introduction to like how he understood nature. But I think as every post-colonial of my generation, you have to go to school and uh, you have to go to university. So biology was one way to sort of keep those connections. And I was very much interested in wildlife conservation. I was very much inspired about, oh, this is a way to spend time in the forest and get paid for it. Um, so right after graduating with a bachelor's degree in biology, I was fortunate to work as a conservation field assistant and then later on as a field worker and biologist. And I was working in Batangai. This is way back in the mid-2000s. And this is when I learned about, for example, they told me, don't say orangutan, that's what tourists call them, or the, you know, white people call them, call them Mayas. Um, so that's where I learned about the different ways of relating to the Mayas. And there was a time when I was working with my field workers and we came across a dead orangutan corpse. It was shot to death. We call it sport hunting because it was shot and then it was left. Killing of an orangutan is very much illegal in Sarawak. You can go to jail for it. It's a totally protected species. 
So it was a great shock because this had taken place in a national park. So, of course, I, I went back to report to my bosses and to the state government. And the response was that, oh, you know, the, the, the bans have forgotten the stories because that was sort of the, the creation myth that was like about Batangai, which is based in truth. They talk about, for example, the bans say they have this long-standing relations with the orangutans. It depends on which areas you work in, but they talk about, for example, the orangutan help them to give birth safely. So the response was that, which came from a very top-down sort of governmental idea, was that the bans have forgotten the stories and they have failed to stop people from hunting, which is how could you do it when you're living, you know, in a local community with thousands of hectares to, to watch? It's clearly impossible. So then education programs was created to reteach Ibans about their cultural stories. And I remember at that time feeling really uncomfortable um, with that idea, but I, I couldn't, I, I didn't come across political ecology yet. I had all this like questions that no one could answer for me. And these were like local people as well. So that's why it was also quite confusing. So local people like myself who have, you know, been educated, lived abroad, and we were saying, well, you know, rural communities, they don't, they need to be told what to do. And it's, I, I feel like that's very much like a legacy of colonial administration. So the top down and the town knows it best, and we need to tell the rural communities what to do. So I kept questioning and I, I didn't know how to answer the questions. And I think those were the reasons why I then decided to work on more like indigenous land rights to sort of understand the situation in my home state. And then I went on to do my PhD and I never thought I would do a PhD in Batangai. I, I had conceived a different proposal, but as you know, when you start your PhD, everything goes out the window and I wanted to do more mapping. But when you're on the ground, everything is different. And I thought this may be the last opportunity I may have to actually tell the story that I've been wanting to tell for like over a decade. When I talk about my PhD, it's not about, you know, like a couple of years of field work. It's actually like years of thinking about these issues and, and also drawing back to my time when I was a conservation biologist in Batangai. So you've drawn on your own personal experiences being raised in Sarawak. You've drawn on your experiences as a conservation field assistant and field worker and conservation biologist. You've brought it all together into your PhD and now your postdoc here at Sydney Uni. Ultimately, your research seeks to advance a decolonial political ecology of orangutan conservation. What might this look like? I just want to talk about when we think about global environment issues, there tends to be like a crisis mode that pushes us to like rush solutions. So when issues become crisis-oriented, uh, relations with the most marginalised peoples tend to be neglected or ignored. So the end result, as I previously talked about, leads to many rushed policies and top-down proposals for more like authoritarian interventions that do not take into account, for example, relations with indigenous and local rural peoples that are based on consent, trust, and reciprocity. So a good example is that currently in Sarawak there, we have this government development project called SCORE, Sarawak Corridor Renewable Energy, that claims to be inexpensive, clean, safe, and renewable energy as to move away from agro and petroleum oil extraction industries that we previously have and currently have. The resulting solution is to build mega dams on native customary lands that will continue to power pollute industries, such as aluminium smelters, steel, and other oil-based and oil palm-based industries. So while there have been well-publicized environmental campaigns to stop these mega dams, I also wanted to gently criticize the tendency to focus on Western-led solutions and saviors. 
and to romanticize the plight of rural indigenous communities. We pay little heed to like the ambiguities and uncertainties of the complex ethical entanglements between urban indigenous, which includes the elite and those governing and the rural communities. So I feel that we should focus on restoring and advocating for more ethical and just relationships, uh, which I feel like a decolonial political ecology of conservation could be. And this could start by acknowledging and understanding human and more than human and human and land relations while supporting what we call historical reparations on their own terms. We understand it from the context of like giving land back or also just advocacy to live on the lands and, and live the way that they should. So political ecology points out to the ways colonial and post-colonial conservation as a naturalist treat native customary lands as a homogenous universal concept such as wilderness. And also social science conservation work, you know, observes the, the contradictions and ambivalence that shape the relations between conservation organizations and indigenous communities. So this work includes observing how indigenous traditions and knowledge are too often objectified as resources for conservation. But the political economy drivers of dispossession, deforestation and landscape transformation are often ignored because of political reasons. I mean, organizations don't want to be kicked out from the areas of doing research in. So my work here seeks to build on these insights to explore what I call a decolonial political ecology of human orangutan relations, while also examining how this could be articulated through different ways that demonstrate survivance, and also what I call contra-remembering, which is like ways of remembering how they resist colonial forces and refusal. So when I think about what a decolonial political ecology would look in practice, I think of the following. First, we acknowledge and disclose the complexities of self in research while protecting interlocutors from further anthropological type inquiry as per politics of refusal. Uh, we recognize its subtle and different ways and strategies that indigenous relations with lands, atmospheres, waters, more than humans in their emplaced context may arise, including the different ways of remembering how colonial forces were. We defend space for collaborative concealment when it comes to indigenous survivance. And what I mean is that they bonds know what they're doing, like what conservation organizations are doing when they emphasize the myth, when they do education programs, but they treat it as like a way of entertainment. So I feel like it's funny because then you have like two sets of local people sort of like playing a role because that's what the Western funders want and that's what they sort of conceive. And the reason why rural communities, local communities go along with it, even though they're like, well, we don't really remember. <laughs> it's not like we've forgotten our stories. Uh, it's because they want to have good relations with people who have funding, with people who have, like people like myself, for example, who have more influence than they would. And the, the idea is that, you know, we, we show them our way of life, we build on these relations, and they in turn would help us when they need to. So it's a way of understanding that the role that we play. And also when I talk about dismantling overstated Euro-Western ways of naming and understanding nature and emphasizing indigenous ways of knowing and relating, so in this case, when we talk about Ulu'ai, Batangai, Ibans, when we talk about orangutans, we mean specifically the Mayas and the different ways that they call the Mayas and, and how they relate it in terms of like relations to themselves, but also to land and place. So this may include some support for indigenizing names, which I, I think from an Australian perspective, people understand that, but also recognizing that the power to name, to rename, comes with the power to classify, possess, without dismantling power relations and structures that render indigenous life worlds and the relations with an ecological and spiritual world. 
So I'm not advocating that we should just start calling the orangutan mayas because that doesn't work for like other areas, say in Sabah, in Kalimantan or in Sumatra, where they have different names for orangutans. But what I'm saying is that they have their own different terms of understanding it. And I think we should understand that and respect that before we conceive and also give power to overstated narratives about orangutans and local communities. Mm. June, it's such an exciting research agenda and um, I think we're really lucky to have you. I can't wait to keep an eye on your research as it continues to progress and I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining us at the SEAC Stories podcast. Thank you, Natalie and Ariane, for having me. And, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you, so thank you for the questions. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And, of course, let your friends know about us on social media.